BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome, everybody, to Finding Hermes. As always, I hope you're ready to go through those doors with the God of the mind. Lay your cards on the table and uh, find out, well, the interior journey with the psychopomp himself. With us, we have the pleasure of having back to the, well, first time to this podcast, we have Becca Tarnas. Becca, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation to this podcast. Oh, it's going to be great. Uh, again, Becca wrote a book that I love. I keep it mm. on my shelf. Uh, oh. It's an incredible book with so many good insights into Jung, Tolkien, and just uh, living the symbolic life and living a better life, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, A Reader's Guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will definitely be getting more insights today on this. So, Becca, I guess, as I ask all my guests and finding Hermes, how has been the last two years? What have you learned or what mm. have you learned to do better? <laughs> um, it's, I think, as it's been the case for many people, it's been uh, a challenging two years to be sure, especially 2020. Um, although my own personal challenges rippled from 2020 into 2021 as well. Um, I've been having a good start to this year to 2022. And so I have been feeling a lot of gratitude for a sense of, of shift and opening up and, um, just, acknowledging that grace when it does come in, especially knowing that it can sometimes be fleeting. But um, yeah, I mean, I I would say that even pandemic aside, 2020 was the most challenging year in my own life. So, um, and that was kind of very personal reasons embedded within the context of the larger collective challenges. Um, So yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey, we could say. 
Have you uh, changed any of your spiritual exercise, psychological practice in 2020? Or what have you found rewarding that really might have, as they say, uh, saved you? Yeah. Well, and just to give some of that personal context, um, if that's all right, it's I went through a divorce in 2020 Mm. and uh, that was unfolding as the pandemic was unfolding. So Mm. there was uh, the outer uh, situation and lockdown and all of that. And then very much my inner world as well. And psychologically and spiritually, one of the first things that I turned to was I actually was working with three therapists. And I know that sounds a little bit excessive. Um, I have two. I have two. One Jungian and one traditional. (laughs) I've been working with a Jungian analyst for a long time. So Mm -hmm. I was working with her. um, And then I brought in another um, more kind of spiritual counselor and guide, but she was also a a licensed therapist. And then I was working with a couples counselor and it did feel really important to have those three uh, containers holding me at that time. And it felt like that was the most important thing to be able to lean into because as things were feeling very difficult, um, if I couldn't go into my depths and my complexes and my patterns, then I knew that the situation I was in wouldn't transform. However, that was unfolding. Um, So that was the first thing that I turned to that was really, um, just really important. Um, I also have the privilege of living in a more rural area. And especially in those earlier months of lockdown, it was such a blessing to be able to still be still go outside to be able to you know walk in areas where I um, wasn't going to run into other people or that I could keep a good distance from them outside. And that too, I found really essential. Um, I was I was doing a lot of wa- guided walking meditations through 2020 in particular. I haven't been doing that as much lately. That kind mm-hmm. of fell off with the, um, as, as things in my life really did begin to shift. And um, so being able to, to walk, be in nature, be guided through a meditation by a, a voice that, that was soothing and that could kind of help hold me. I think a lot of what I was looking for in that period of time were containers because the container I'd been in was breaking. And so figuring out what are the new containers to hold me being, you know, the work with the therapists, being the natural world, um, coming into a better, more kind of grounded relationship with my own body was really helpful as well. And then I did start learning, like within the last two years, I've started learning a lot more about um, just the worlds of of astrological magic. And I, you know, I, I am an astrologer, so I've been working with astrology for a long time. But starting to see how the correspondences between the planetary archetypes align with materia, with actual um, stones and plants and animals and um, with the physical world that is not just our psychology. And earlier on in those those researches, 
I came to recognize that rose, which is a kind of symbolic expression of Venus, mm-hmm. and I could go into the reasons why, but um, that rose was really helpful in terms of helping hold my grief. And that came forward really distinctly during a meditation practice I was doing. Um, it was actually during one of my classes. I was teaching a class at Pacifica Graduate Institute on active imagination. And I led the students through their own active imagination process. And then they had all gone off to paint and draw and write about their experiences. And so I was left to my own devices until we all came back together to start sharing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just go into a meditative space until it's time to come back together. And the image that just kept coming up was this kind of dusty pink rose arising from the heart. I've never been a pink person. (laughs) (laughs) It's for some reason, it's just not a color I've been drawn to. And I found that as I was going through this you know, kind of heartbreaking, grieving process that um, I was so drawn to uh, to roses, to that kind of dusty pink color, to rose quartz was mm. really helpful to um, my my b- best friend, who's also one of my fellow teaching colleagues, uh, Laura Machetti, who was an amazing. She was an amazing person for catching me in that space too, and um, she handed me this huge rose quartz and she said don't put it down and so working with rose in all these different forms rose oil rose water just bringing it into all the areas of my life um felt like a kind of material connection to a psychological and spiritual reality that i could turn to to remind myself of those spiritual dimensions and that's what i found really helpful when thinking about the materia, thinking about mm-hmm. um, these more kind of tangible, physical uh, expressions of the archetypes is that when we feel really disconnected from, you know, a larger sense of spiritual or um, divine cosmic meaning, we can still kind of physically turn to something as a reminder that it's there. And that's, um, that's what I found with, with the rose in those months in particular. And then just naturally it kind of tapered off. So it was very dominant during that period of time. And then as I started to find healing and new um, stages of life were opening up, I realized I wasn't using the rose as much. (laughs) So, yeah. Thanks for sharing. What a wonderful story. Uh, Two things that reminds me of Becca, one, uh, a goddess that's really been on my psyche lately, and I thought Mm -hmm. this would be the last one in the world is Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. And and I'm like, well, I'm just going to follow this. And Mm-hmm. Aphrodite is fascinating when you start researching. I mean, in the the Tree of Life and the Hermetic Kabbalah, she's associated with Netza, I believe, victory, and she's mm-hmm. power. And in ancient times, she was not just the goddess of love; she was the goddess of war and destruction. 
So mm-hmm. as you start going that path, of course, I know I'm finding something about my inner world as I'm exploring this. So it's yeah. I'm just saying it's an entry sink. You just brought Aphrodite and Venus and obviously the the fallen star, the morning star, all that. So the other thing, too, is like you, when um, everything started in 2020, I just had this urge to be outside. I, yeah. I was always and I realized everything is fine out there in nature for all its viciousness and beauty and gentleness it's everything is fine i had this strange thing about going even more to the store and being around people and i think it's my inner rebel because i'm i'm the kind of guy like i remember my 20s bartending at this pub and there was a seedy rest pub out there and you know human beings we were it's one night we're packed we're busy and we hear gunshots what do you think everybody did including myself we ran to it's the bar because mm. you know what I mean. There's there's some of us that suddenly danger means let's ride that edge. And mm-hmm. I didn't think it'd be like twenty of us going out there. And some <laughs> some people went under the table. So wow. <clears throat> interesting facts. And yeah, one thing I've also learned, and thank God for Jung. And let me know your thoughts. But when Jung said, when two people go out on a date. It's not two people. It's four people. It's their ego and everything else. And learning that even when you meet somebody or you're with your husband or wife, you're forever projecting. You know, when you meet somebody, you're projecting your best things onto them. Oh, he's so intelligent. Oh, he's so sweet. (laughs) And then later on, you start projecting your own shadow on that poor person. So it's not like, A, you don't see them for who they are. And yeah. B, since we're all a bunch of complexes and shadow material, there is no, you wonder, was there a Becca and her husband or Miguel and his, you know, first failed marriage and his current marriage? It's makes it fascinating, but also a lot bearable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, you know, just, just to speak to that as well, because I have a tremendous amount of uh, respect and care and love for the man that I was married to um, and we're still friends and colleagues and um, that I just had to come to recognize that relationships like, uh, like lifetimes have a, a particular span. And sometimes that span comes to a close earlier than we expected. And that's really the journey that, that we went on together through that process. So um, just to, to share that as well, like when you just kind of realize, for, for me at least, it was a recognition of something that wasn't working and how I needed to grow. But um, yeah, just that there, a big part of the process all along was recognizing um, the need to maintain that sense of respect and care and connection and so forth. Um, and and that I think has been able to grow since too. Um, but yes, what you're saying about about projection can be so uh, it can become so overwhelming, mm-hmm. and it's just a constant task. Whether we're meeting someone new, whether we're falling in love or forming a new friendship, or entering into a new work relationship or, you know, watching someone on, um, on a video, giving a lecture on a podcast that, um, they become our projection screens and that we can use all of those relational moments to ask ourselves, what am I bringing to the table? Who am I in this relationship? 
not to make it self-centered and solipsistic, but just to keep coming back to that. And then as a reminder to be able to ask uh, the person in your presence, who are you really, rather than my image of you? Um, And that's, I mean, that's an eternal practice, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because complexes are moving, ego is adjusting, the psyche is 24-7 giving us missives about our missions on this planet. So it's yeah. you start going like the the super translogical song, who, who am I, who am I? And I think I've learned instead of saying, who am I? I'm like, okay, I'll shut up and do what you want me to do. So I'll just, just I'm not going to ask, just tell me which way to go. I'm tired of fighting. Uh, yeah. What, uh, what have you learned most about, or what advice do you have for people in relationships or friendships or marriage? What does Becca mm-hmm. learn the most? Cause even <laughs> I'm thinking it's hard to know when it's, when enough is enough or it's time to move on. And I can't, I'm not judging because God knows I, I was in bad relationships, toxic. I was, I didn't know when to quit doing drugs and drinking until almost everything was gone. Everything, well, pretty much everything was gone. So it's, um, what have you learned? I learned, I learned a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I learned that it can be very easy to lose oneself Mm. in a relationship and that when seeking out a relationship, really asking yourself, especially amidst those sparkling limerence feelings at the beginning, am I showing up as myself? Not the perfected best version of myself, mm-hmm. but am I showing up in my my rawness, my vulnerability, my wounds, the mess? Am I willing to show that early on? And I think that's a really important guide for us to hold, which means, and this is hence the three therapists, I had to figure out who the hell I was in order to move forward in that way. Um, And then also, you know, of course, everyone's coming into a relationship with different intentions, different goals, but being clear on what those are and can you see forward. And so if you're in a relationship where you stop being able to see the path forward, that can start to become an indication of, I. it's not just the mystery of life, I don't know where this is going, but I don't know how to dream into this. Mm. And that I think is a a really important guide as well can you dream into the relationship that you are in and that that has also been uh, an important factor for me to to learn about to recognize so um who are you as an autonomous individual out not that we're ever outside of relationship but um figuring out how to not lose oneself in a relationship and then can you dream forward or are you dwelling more on the past and the mistakes and the things that you wish you had done differently? So those are a couple of the lessons. That yeah, those, are, those are good ones. It reminds me of the saying, I forgot who said it, uh, depression is the inability to imagine a future or conceive a future. You're just, <clears throat> we talk about right. new, we're in the present in the moment, but like you said, if there's not a part of us that's speculating, that's moving into the mystery, that's at least trying to find out what's around the corner, then that's not good either. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that definition of depression was definitely something I was experiencing, although mm. I, I couldn't quite recognize it at the time. Um, so dream, dreaming forward is, has I been a really it. important lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I'm, what about, for example, and as obviously in my first marriage, I was a complete, I, my bipolarism was out of control. My drinking and my addictions were out of control. Um, and my first wife was horrible overeating, uh, um, disease. Mm -hmm. So we were dead in the water. And it happened, but there was still a lot of the blame game, or especially when you blame yourself. Like uh, one thing that really helped me, Becca, was when I realized one day that addiction is not a moral fault. We don't know what it is. It's a mystery. We do know that you should get it treated, but knowing it's not a moral failure helped me. And, and I don't judge yeah. others. I don't care where you are in the spectrum, how old you are, what kind of addiction. I know it's not because you're a bad person you know yeah. that puritan idea did you uh how did you cope or did you go through periods of blaming yourself and then having to come to terms with you know it just happens definitely and i think that it's it is a fine line between blaming oneself and um taking responsibility for yourself and that can still be a line that I struggle with. I think I'm very quick to blame myself as uh, a way of trying to take responsibility. It's like the first layer of trying to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, okay, that's actually not enough. Because if I'm just blaming myself, I'm not really taking responsibility for my part. I'm just doing everything I can not to blame the other person. And in that taking responsibility, there becomes a parsing apart mm -hmm. of what is mine, what is somebody else's, what we're both bringing to the table as well. Like it doesn't just come down to two people. It comes down to our lineages and our uh, how we're raised and the context that we're in and, and all this. And so taking responsibility also means kind of parsing that apart and really seeing, oh, this is the, uh, this is the coin I threw down on the table, mm -hmm. but I didn't put all of it there. And that, that differentiation, I think is an important journey. And, and I think I'm very much still, uh, on the path of that journey. I, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily arrived, but healing takes time, right? But it takes a long time. It's yeah, the moment really never ends. It just keeps going and it keeps going. And uh, you were talking about what were you talking about? Spaces or pods, uh, room earlier? I forgot the term you used. Containers. Containers. That yeah. were you talking about? Basically, having to transform your worldview, or what exactly did mm -hmm. you mean? Because I know one thing that helped me with uh, the the union that I work with is, and she had plenty of quotes, is that sometimes you have to destroy your beliefs and start with new beliefs. You got to destroy your worldview. You've got to. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with starting because that's not your authentic self. It's just stuff you believe, and your mm -hmm. ego thinks the world should be. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there were certainly some beliefs that had to be dismantled and 
it's some some beliefs or some experiences and and knowledge were a continuity through that like my astrological worldview maintained very much through the pandemic i actually felt like it was really affirmed going through the pandemic mm. when we could see the very rare combination of transits that were unfolding mm. in 2020 in particular that correlated with what we are experiencing so some of my worldview actually felt more solidified and affirmed but at that more personal level there were beliefs about myself that i did have to let go of and a lot of that had to do with holding myself to a perfectionist standard which has been very hard for me <laughs> i've been a perfectionist for a very long time and having to come up against the recognition that i could envision something and will it to be and and yet it wasn't going to play out the way that I had thought and that that's okay. And it was okay to be messy and it was okay to be broken. Um, during that period of time, I remember coming across an article and I wish I could remember the name of the Hindu goddess that it refers to because um, there is a goddess of being broken on the floor in pieces. Mm -hmm. And that was so affirming that there is a deity on behalf of that moment when we are crushed on the floor and we cannot imagine getting up and we're such a mess and and yet this too is a sacred moment that this actually can be placed at the altar of of a deity and that was a really beautiful uh piece of knowledge to come across from a, a culture that recognized the the fact that at some point in life we all go through and often many times in life from a whole variety of circumstances we all go through those experiences of being broken yeah i love what you said and god love this goddess uh, the hindus have like eight million and <laughs> i don't think not one gets wasted i'll put it that way there's yeah. something for every part of the human psyche yeah interesting you one lesson I learned early when I was in recovery and a meetings and there was this old timer. He was like 70 years old, Becca. And you, you could, you could, you know, those people, you can feel the love and the peace floating. So this old timer, you could just feel it. People would just congregate. And he was talking about years before he, he lived in the South side of Chicago. And one day he found out his son had been going to school and had been gunned down. And he sat there praying to God, angry and in tears and all that. And he's like, why, God? Why me? Why me? Why me? Mm. And he heard a voice and God simply said, why not? And suddenly, and he just felt peace. It released him because he realized, what, am I better than everybody? I'm the one person who should have a flawless, lucky life while everybody, you know, and the reality, as you said, that we're all going to get broken sooner or later. It might be losing a child, a divorce, addiction, losing your job, whatever it is, we're all going to be broken. And it's in my, somebody like me, an alcoholic who likes to be egocentric and my arrogance, I assume I should be luckier than everybody else. <laughs> It's a it's a humbling moment for sure. Yeah, that's a that's a powerful story. Why not?
Yeah. Why, why not you? So, uh, and, um, what about, and you're talking about going inward and being broken, uh, a line that stays with me lately, it was Philip K. Dick who said it is sometimes an appropriate response to reality to go insane. Mm. And then I was thinking, well, you know, who did that so well, that was Jung. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, we both know Jung went to a crisis in his life with Freud and everything that was going around. And he was at a crossroads and he decided, um, like you said, you're just going to dream for he He's going to go lean into the pain and everything that happened. And his uh, red book, black book experiences were him. Some have said going down into the soul, but it also meant having a psychotic break. So Jung also mm -hmm. seems to echo this, that sometimes in your life, you just have to let all the pieces, you got to fall down and you just got to go deep into those crazy mm -hmm. places you don't want to face. Did you go through something like that? Or what do you think? I didn't go through something as extreme as Jung did in terms of the intense visionary experiences. Um, but I was teaching that material <laughs> during that time. It's and therapy too. Huh? <laughs> it's definitely therapy. And there is an important lesson from Jung in his Red Book experiences, which is that he too had a container. And that container for him was his family. It was Tony Wolf who very much was his Ariadne's thread, bringing him back every day. And he also had his work obligations. And, um, you know, seeing, seeing his patients teaching, but then, of course, he moved away from teaching during that period of time. And I also found that that was something that I leaned into, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. I leaned heavily into my work and... Uh, that I felt this sense of responsibility to my students, to my clients, to actually be able to hold space for them. Mm -hmm. And part of that was quite painful because I would be, you know, setting aside the pain that I was in. And it was also a relief because going into those spaces where I was being of service to someone else let me get out of my my own individual situation for you know several hours at a time and that i i recommend that with caution for anyone who's going through any kind of difficult period that it it is it was a coping mechanism working that much but it was also we do need our coping mechanisms to a certain degree, so long as they're not destructive. And that happened to be one that worked for me because it let me have a, a rhythm and a structure within time that I had to come back to every day again and again, and um, might've slowed down some of the more internal, you know, grieving processes. But um, at the same time, it did just keep reminding me I'm here. And, you know, Jung had that very much with um, being able to remind himself, you know, I am Dr. Carl Gustav Jung. I have to see these clients. I have these responsibilities. I have military service. And that is the thread back from one realm to, to this realm of consensus reality. Yeah. 
Yeah, well said. And again, it's a good thing you had three te- therapists because again, there's you're almost you're you're on a sort of a wire because you could easily go down the road of codependence. I had an interview with James Hollis and he talked about mm-hmm. that. And then you've got the idea where you're not facing your soul; you're just keeping busy and you know pushing the pain away. But it's going to come back and ten times worse. And then there's the right one where you are at service of others because you want to deeply connect with their humanity and your humanity and that we're all together helping each other is really a very healthy thing. Absolutely. It really is. And when you invited me onto the podcast with the question of what were the the psychological and the spiritual tools and practices that I drew on in these last two years, my immediate thought was, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I, just I, doing I, was it. Like, I, I was just doing it. And, but I think that that is an important, like I, I had this kind of perfectionist vision that I would come in here and I would have all these lofty things to say. <laughs> Top 10 and, lists and everything. Number yeah. one, wake up. Number two, have this tea. Number three, do yoga at 12. Number four. Yeah. <laughs> all that went out the window. <laughs> kind of, you know, it was, yeah. it, it was like, okay, I'm going to, it was a big experiment actually. Like when I look back on 2020 and all the things that I, um, kind of threw myself into to see, is this going to work? Is this going to work? Does this help? And I did everything from you know the morning yoga practice to the evening yoga practice to no yoga practice whatsoever um, to uh, you know Wim Hof breath work and the cold showers, which was a, a fantastic one that I uh, would like to be bringing back in again. Um, so it was a big experimentation too. And I think that was part of the messiness and the being broken on the floor was just what is available mm-hmm. and that there is no perfect regimen, nor should there be. The whole point of going through a personal or collective crisis is for it all to break down so that something new can be born. And I love the image of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. I know this is something that many people refer to a lot when they're going through a transformation, but the fact that when the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, the caterpillar dissolves completely. There's no semblance of what the caterpillar was before. It's just goo. But the only thing that provides continuity between the caterpillar and the butterfly are these cells called aptly imaginal cells. Oh wow. Isn't that amazing? They're it called is amazing. imaginal cells. Love and it. Those cells, they're the only continuity and they're what become the new body, the the legs, the antenna, the wings of the butterfly. Imaginal cells. I mean the biologists were really tapping into something with that name because you need the the vision within the mess to guide you. Mm-hmm. And it's an acceptance of the dissolution and the mess. And also the imagination keeps dreaming through all of that, dreaming the impossible. Maybe one day I'll fly. Maybe one day I'll be a butterfly. And then lo and behold, the transformation actually does take place. And if the last two years have taught me anything, it's that the death rebirth experience is real. And I'd known about that theoretically for a long time, you know, studying the works of Stanislav Grof and so forth. But to really 
see it and experience it and and know that you have to die in order to be reborn is uh you can't replace the experience yeah no you're right and i love that the imaginal cells i guess the greeks were not as always onto something because obviously the word psyche simply means butterfly and i think that's what they meant going Mm -hmm. into the to those dreaming realms um well, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about Tolkien and what can we learn from him. I guess, first of all, what do you think? Uh, have you given any thought to the Lord of the Rings series coming out this year? I haven't given it too much thought. I've been kind of holding my breath a little bit. <laughs> um, and this is coming from someone. I loved the films that came out 2001 um, through three that mm-hmm. were... Uh, directed by Peter Jackson and his amazing team, because of course, making a film is always a team effort. Uh, it's not one person or the actors by any means. It's it's a whole. I think all of New Zealand had something to do with that. <laughs> so I, you know, I was um, I watched those as a young person, freshly off reading the books, and um, but I also have that kind of purist Tolkienian streak to a certain degree. I think there there are parts of Tolkien that can be reimagined or brought forward in different form. Um, And so that, you know, it's it's a story that is presented as a translation by Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it can be retranslated in some ways in terms of you know, gender dynamics or in terms of race and certain things where a myth should be carried forward. And that a story such as The Lord of the Rings that has such wide appeal can break beyond the cultural bounds that it it was born within. Um, and also, I have a deep devotion to the storyline. And so I've been nervous about what... <laughs> direction they're going to take that in so i just saw i think it's just the teaser trailer you don't actually see any people see um just the voice and uh the the fire and it's be, you realize it's becoming a ring um and i did feel that sense of excitement and anticipation of what is coming um but i feel really nervous about it because i feel so I'm, I mean, um, it, it's my world. Middle Earth is such a deeply personal place. You have a million projections of how something, you know, when I was <laughs> yeah. a kid, I thought Tom Bombadil would look like this and this scene would be, and I, you would yeah. play it over and over. And Peter Jackson did such a great job. So yeah. this one's competing not only with Token, but also with Jackson's version. Right. So, you know, a lot of young people, that was their first, that was their entrance to Tolkien was the movies. You and I probably read the book a million times, but watched the cartoons and all that. I've never seen the cartoon, I have to admit. <laughs> um, but yes, read read the books more times than I can count. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, after The Hobbit, I don't know, The Hobbit trilogy was so bad. I, I can't even, I still sometimes wake up at night with a sort of going, why is Legolas there? Why is Legolas? You know, I just get so angry. But yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's, I'm, I, I have noticed I've been taking a kind of aloof stance, maybe yeah. because I don't want to get hurt <laughs> by it. And, 
I will watch it. I will be very curious to see what the, the larger collective response is. Um, and there's a lot of potential to do a good job with it. And, um, and Especially I with always, a series where you can just go for 8, 10, 12 hours if you want to. Absolutely. Well, we shall find out. And I do just want to add something that is a good counter to the Tolkien purists, including that part of myself, <laughs> is that in one of his letters, Tolkien said that he had this vision for a great mythology that others would take up that it those stories would be carried forward in music and in drama and in other art forms and so i do have to remind myself of that that film is one of those art forms and of course film is amazing because it can bring in so many other art forms painting and set design and costuming and performance and all of that so tolkien did have that vision and I don't think he wanted a stranglehold on his story. Maybe part of him did when he was correcting the early potential film adaptation that he very strongly disapproved of where he mm -hmm. felt they were overusing the Eagles. <laughs> He's like, they're not a flying service. You can't just <laughs> fly people from place they're to place. They're not Uber. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so he, he, and there's good reason for him to be distraught with that. But I think, if you have respect for the myth, for the mystery, and really the spiritual core of what Tolkien is communicating, then dream it forward, as we've been saying in, in other arenas. Yeah, well said. And, and just like you said, Tolkien himself said he w didn't create it. He was just recording another world that came into our world. So he would say... I'm just a stenogram. I'm just a guy writing down something that's already real. You write down your version, right? Yeah. How you see that world, which mm. he saw as real. Fairy world was the imaginal, uh, the collective, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. The imaginal is real. It's just not the kind of real that we associate with hard, concrete, material reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, the last two years, hopefully people have questioned it because reality just ain't what she used to be mm -hmm. uh, in the West, in Western culture. And quick question, did in the Lord of the Rings, is there anything about a pandemic or a breakout? Because Tolkien, yes, mm -hmm. you and I have talked about World War One experiences, how it informed it. We have, you know, in the books, there's the Industrial Revolution, there's massive mechanical warfare, there's the destruction of the environment, stuff that he perhaps lived through mm -hmm. and changed. But is there anything about, because he lived through the Spanish flu, and that was, if we think it was bad now, that was right. 10 times worse and it was global it was in the middle of a war anything yeah. like that or he just didn't i don't think he took on disease and i think one of the reasons for that is because especially in the earlier tales they're focused on elves and elves are not susceptible to illness so i think he managed to dodge that one in a more subtle way you could see the kind of corruption that's spread by Morgoth or Sauron or even like the, the black breath of the Nazgul mm -hmm. as a kind of um, virus or vapor. But he doesn't explicitly go toward like disease or viruses. But as we're bringing up World War I and 
how it shaped Tolkien and even World War II in terms of the larger zeitgeist when he was writing, astrologically, we had the same transits in 2020 as were in the sky at the start of World War I, the start of World War II. 9-11. It was a Saturn-Pluto alignment mm-hmm. um, that also correlated with the AIDS epidemic at the beginning of the 80s or go back seven centuries. Um, the bubonic plague started in China under a Saturn-Pluto alignment, oh, spread wow. to Europe by the next Saturn-Pluto alignment. So there astrologically is definitely um, precedence for this and correlations and also um, kind of archetypal mirroring between the world wars and what we've just gone through and that a lot of astrologers looking forward at 2020 did think is world war three going to start well no but something on that scale did occur that we are still living through the effects of um, even though the transit that initiated it very recently came to a close Mm. How does a uh, how does the astrological landscape look for us this year? Is it better, or what are you seeing? So there's an interesting overlap of transits where it was the Saturn Pluto conjunction, which has a very kind of intensified, pressured feeling to it that Mm -hmm. correlated with the pandemic, with the lockdowns, uh, with the economic situation correlating with that as well. That alignment actually started in 2018, really started to tighten in in 2019, and then was exact in 2020 and amplified by the planet Jupiter joining the alignment and even Mars joining the alignment when uh, in March and April of 2020, when everything just kind of caught fire and took off. So that Saturn-Pluto conjunction ended basically in December. Transits, when they end, they don't just suddenly cut off. They fade out. But overlapping with that, beginning in 2020, was an alignment also of Saturn, but the planet Uranus. And Saturn and Uranus are very different archetypally. Saturn has to do with structure, with boundaries, with limits, uh, with reality, with tradition, the past, history, very concrete. Um, Whereas Uranus is uh, the change maker. It's the rebel. It's the revolutionary. It brings sudden, unexpected disruption, technology, innovation. So you're bringing these two very opposite principles together. In the language of James Hillman, the archetypal psychologist, it's like bringing the Senex and the Puer together and trying to get them to get along. And so what we often see under Saturn-Uranus alignments, it's the sudden collapse of old structures. It's the breaking of things that you thought were enduring or were going to last. It's crisis and it's crisis management. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of potential in Saturn-Uranus alignments to like make the hard changes. Saturn is what's hard. The changes are um, related to Uranus. But there's often a lot of splitting, division, uh, schisms, othering that take place under Saturn-Uranus alignments, um, like generational splits or ideological splits. Mm -hmm. So again, that started to come into alignment in 2020, kind of quietly under the bigger transits, and then was very dominant last year. 
where we've seen so many splits and sense of crisis and the collapse of seemingly enduring structures. And that is continuing through this year into next year. And so even though I think some of the intensified pressure of the Saturn-Pluto alignment has started to lift, we are still in a crisis. But it, the, the feeling that I've noticed shift, so we're recording this at the, the end of January 2022, the shift from December, when the Saturn-Pluto kind of contr deep contraction ended, continuing into now, is the response to the pandemic before was lockdown, shut things in, stop things, this kind of mass mobilization, very Saturn-Pluto response. With Saturn-Uranus, there's more of a sense of I don't know what's happening. It's broken. Who's in charge? What questioning authority? Those kinds of um, breaks. And that's what we're going to be dealing with. So I wish I could say, oh, yes, it's just going to get easier. <laughs> Something's shifted and something will continue to shift. But I think anyone with a sense of intuition knows that we're not out of this by any means. It's going to take a long time to integrate it. Um, we do have one other alignment that's coming in this year only that has a very different feeling. And that's a Jupiter-Neptune alignment. And Neptune mm -hmm. relates to the imagination, to spirituality, the transcendent, the sacred, the numinous, very watery and merging and dissolving and fantastical. And then Jupiter makes that grander. There's a richness, um, an abundance, a joy that Jupiter offers to what it touches. Blessings, um, joviality, warmth, excess. And so when you bring those two together, it can actually create a very idealistic period of time. So layered on top of a crisis, which is interesting, they're I think it's going to play out as that starts to come in a little um, it'll really be dominant in the spring. And I think we're going to feel it. A metaphor I've been using a lot is that it might be kind of like a hot tub at the end of a hard day yeah. where we can ease into that hot tub. A little, little furry visitor here. Um, <laughs> we can ease into that hot tub and feel a sense of relief from the pain that we're experiencing. But it's not going to fix the problems but it is going to give us some kind of an outlet. And now there's a shadow side to that too. It can, you know, correlate with more addictive or escapist tendencies or everything's going to be fine. So let's just kind of rush into um, things being um, open or, you know, how, however that is going to play out. Um, so I'm still holding a sense of discernment and a little bit of skepticism with that. And at the same time, it's such a beautiful alignment for more kind of sacred, transcendent spiritual experiences, immersions in nature and in water and under the stars and um, things like that, that I think can offer us a grander view than we've had available during these last several years where everything's been so kind of myopic and enclosed. Um, so that that's a little bit of a, a brief tour of what we have going on in 2022 astrologically. 
Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. As I keep saying on this show, this is the age of Hermes, the, the god of transitions and doorways and change, you know, like the coyote here in North America. This god is going to change you whether you like it or not. He'll drive you crazy if you resist and you just got to go down to the land of the dead with him as we're talking. He will Mm -hmm. take you down to the land of the dead, but that means rebirth too. Uh, you know, Cthulhu has risen from the waters, the Lord of Dreams, and he ain't coming back. Or as I tell people, Becca, if you expect us to go back to 2019, you're just in for more heartbreak. This is, yeah. would you agree, this is completely new, but there's also new opportunities for going inward, for finding new spaces about our destiny, our lives as a people, as an individuals. There's a lot of opportunity. It's just, you know, change is scary for any human Mm -hmm. beings we're pack animals yeah absolutely and it's this really is just the beginning too of change because we have a a looming ecological crisis to contend with not just next but immediately and i think in the long run that's going to dwarf the pandemic yeah there's a lot yeah Definitely a lot on the menu. Uh, the, uh, those gods, those gods. Are there any gods that have been speaking to you lately? Because I, I, again, I talk <laughs> about Hermes and Aphrodite that have come to mm-hmm. me. So I'm sort of following them all over the place. Any for mm-hmm. you that you've uh, latched onto? Well, or have the... possessed you? <laughs> <laughs> possessed. Um, one figure who I mean, I I'm really a deep part of my own spiritual practice is being connected to the pantheon, the full Mm -hmm. pantheon. And so I try and distribute my attention and care equally amongst the members, but an expression of the, the Venusian archetype of love and beauty that in, in the Greek form is Aphrodite in the Roman form is Venus in the Yoruba tradition is Oshun. And I've been feeling especially drawn to that particular cultural manifestation of her as the deity or the goddess of love, of beauty, of sweet water, of honey, and that we are in a a moment right now of needing to remember our connection with Oshun and to honor love and to honor the sweet water and the honey and the bees and um, the person who I've learned the majority of this from is a a Yoruba priestess named Louisa Tish and uh, just her connection with with Oshun has been a beautiful teacher um, for you know mostly from a distance on my part uh, but learning from her and uh, she talks about how when we look at the the droughts and the water being polluted or disappearing, um, the fires raging and the, the reservoirs sinking, that Oshun isn't here right now. We're not offering her our due respect. And so that's that's something that's really been speaking to me at a very personal level. And also um, at that larger ecological level that we need 
to respect the waters. We need to respect the pollinators. We need to respect those that bring sweetness into our lives. Um, so again, very much having uh, Tish to thank for that knowledge. But that's that's a uh, that's a figure, a deity who I've been feeling very connected to of late. Wonderful, yeah. And for those of you out there, if you're looking for the Vedic version of of Hermes, Matangi is actually a female mm. goddess, but she is really. And then I think Hermes actually came from an older Vedic god. I think it's Poshua, Poshua, and eventually mm. he tried. They, they split him up into Pan and Hermes. So interesting. But like as you've written, we're dealing with archetypes, ancient energies, and figures, and all that. So these things, these things are important. I was as well as we're getting kind of end. Uh, I wanted to get your advice because in our last interview or advice for the audience, we talked yeah. about uh, our favorite line in the Lord of the Rings is when uh, when Frodo wishes he had killed um, Gollum. And he's like, I wish I'd kill him. And Gandalf is like, hey, hey. And, he, you know, in that famous speech you do see in the first movie, none of us wanted to come to days like this. I wish I'd never been here. It's really it still keeps me going. And then, of course, you know, I've talked about what uh, Frodo and Sam had to go through against all odds to really change the world. Um, yeah. uh, any top lessons from Lord of the Rings that relate to today that you want to share with the audience? I know it's mm -hmm. kind of a loaded <laughs> question because you could talk for the next three hours. <laughs> those yeah. novels are just chock full of lessons on life, relationships, war, everything. Yeah. Well, when I look to particularly Frodo and Sam's journey, but really all of the threads of that story, one thing that has always stood out to me about the Lord of the Rings is that it is a tale of fellowship. It is not a singular hero's journey, but a hero's plural, plural journey. And that if we lean into our relationships, that is the most important thing that we can take care of and nurture not having to take on the burden of the world by ourselves, but know that we need a fellowship to do that. And whether it's the destruction of the ring, which has so many different individuals helping bring that to fruition, or, um, you know, the great battle of the Pelennor fields, or even, you know, Eowyn's extraordinary moment where she slays the, the Lord of the Nazgul. How is it possible? Also because Mary was there as well and uh, distracted the, uh, the witch king for a moment by stabbing the back of his knee. It's every single pivotal event happens in fellowship. Aragorn going through the paths of the dead, doesn't go alone. He's accompanied by Gimli and Legolas and the, the Dunedain of the North. Um, that There's a whole company going with him. So um, that's a really important lesson. And also that pivotal moment when Frodo and Sam realize that they're in a story. <laughs> and I do keep reminding myself of that, that in our darkest moments, when we realize it, that it's part of a larger story, that the story doesn't end here, and that even a tragedy has another act, that there's, there's more to come. And that can be a very helpful, orienting reminder. When we come out of 
you know, the dark night of the soul, for example, or the night sea journey or the descent. I remember years ago thinking, what great names those are. <laughs> it sounds so good. The Until night you're there. Sea journey. And then you're there and you're just like, what? Get <laughs> me out of here. <laughs> this is not, but then when you actually try and give language to it and talk about it in retrospect, it is, there is a goddess of being broken on the floor. It is a prayerful moment. It, it There is a beauty to the dark night of the soul that using the language, using our storytelling skills can actually pull us out of that place. So if you're in that moment of wanting to give up and not carry on with the story, remember that you're telling your story as you're in it. And so those are some of the lessons that I've taken from the Lord of the Rings and, and applied to my own life. Beautifully said. And uh, in our interview, we talked about symbolism, but what does the ring mean to you? What do you think it symbolizes? I know we talked about elves, our altered consciousness, we went through, but the ring seems to be important. What does the ring symbolize to you, Becca? To me, it symbolizes pure power, basically, that impulse to have, I mean, very much what it does. It's um, the capacity to have power over others, to control other wills, um, because it is the one ring, that perfect circle, which we would normally think of, you know, it's like a yeah. um, kind of symbol of individuation or the mandala, but the one can also have a very negative expression, which is it's a homogenizing force. It's a colonizing force. It's an enslaving force. And in that way, the Lord of the Rings actually tells a very interesting expression of moving away from the one of that homogenizing force to the many. It's the story of the free peoples of Middle Earth, the peoples, plural, with all their diverse cultures and landscapes and homes and um, you know songs and styles of dress and so and languages. I mean, the most important thing for Tolkien, the diversity of languages. It's about that diversity coming together to protect its diversity against a force that would turn us all into copies of the same. And so in that way, I mean, I, I think we can recognize a lot of expressions of that power over in our world today. Wow, that's yeah, very, very wise words. It reminds me of, mm -hmm. uh, there's a story where Jung, after meeting Alan Dulles, who would later create the CIA, he was treating his mistress, and Alan Dulles was kind of getting ideas from Jung for nefarious purposes, which we kind of see the CIA doing. Mm -hmm. But Jung actually said, the opposite of good is not evil, the opposite of good is power. Mm. I think Jung and uh, Tolkien would agree on that one. <laughs> it's that, like you yeah. said, high Borg mentality where we're all the same. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, wonderful, wonderful. Well, for the audience, I would definitely please get our book. It's wonderful. There's so many insights, not just for these days, not for days of hard times, but for all times. There's so much wisdom there. And uh, Becca, um, it will flashing across the screen right now, but for those on audio, where can they find out more about you? My website is my name. It's beccatarnas.com. And I 
at this point, mostly use it to update events that I'm doing. So the events page is always pretty active these days with different talks and conferences and so forth. Um, and there's also a, uh, a good collection on that website of videos and um, essays that I've written in the past and so forth. You've been very quiet on your YouTube page. <laughs> I have. Um, I've been quiet on my YouTube page, but very, very busy in other places. In, uh, in real life, yes, yes. All right. Well, yeah. we look forward to seeing your videos. But uh, yeah, we look. I always look forward to any material you put out. So, uh, but uh, and thank you, Becca. Thank you. I'm, blah, 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 blah. I'm getting so excited here. I'm going to ask for an autograph now. <laughs> Write your autograph on the screen. But <laughs> Becca. Thank you very much for coming on on Finding Hermes, and good luck with everything you do. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be here and speak with you again. Um, my best to you as well. Thank you. And there you have it. Great interview with Becca Tarnas. I always enjoy having her on, and it's always great when you get an academic who's also a mystic seeker. And it's not over yet. Or more like it's not over yet for subscribers. If you're a subscriber and you're listening in audio, I'm going to go ahead and add our past interview where we really went granular into Becca's book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm. I think you'll enjoy it because, again, we really break down the Lord of the Rings, the adventures of Frodo, and Sam, we break down the Red Book and Young and all the psychological and mystic insights and symbolism of those works and those adventures. So, I think you'll enjoy it. One thing I didn't mention that I forgot about during our interview is that there are reports that Jung, while he was going through his Black Book experience, is going down into the underworld to find his soul, he actually kept a gun next to him or a gun in the drawer, which is uh, pretty hardcore, pretty intense, uh, because when you think about it, uh, he thought there might be a possibility that his ego wouldn't be able to take these forces, this discovery, and he wouldn't be able to handle the idea of taking in the, the unconscious, seeing the psyche in its fullness. So uh, in it's kind of scary, but the point is there are no guarantees and uh, safety at the end of the day is an illusion, especially when you're going to find out your authentic self, especially when you're going down into Hades to uh, get that treasure from the dragon. However, I would say that the odds are pretty good that if you take that journey inward, uh, you're going to find a lot of transformation. But it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting fact to consider. As far as the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series, um, since we did this interview, I've seen some of the images, some of the the sh very short trailer. And I'm not too impressed. I, I get a bad vibe about it. Then again, I do have PTSD from all the bad remakes that I've had to endure as a Gen X for the last few decades. So maybe that's it. Um, but, of course, I'm going to check it out. Um, I believe in Wait and See. In fact, it reminds me of uh, uh, years ago, in the days of PHP forums... 
there was a, a big controversy when they were coming out with the reboot or the remake of Battlestar Galactica. They were coming out with the miniseries and um and eventually the tv series and people in those forums were up in arms because starbuck had was being recast or reimagined as a woman and i was one of the few people who defend didn't defend it i said hey let's wait and see who knows what's going to happen uh, they're really changing a lot of things but uh, it looks like they're staying uh, loyal to the ethos of the show and I was right. I mean, I think Catherine Sackoff did an excellent job and she made Starbuck so much better than the original character. It was a, it was a great reimagining, great uh, reinvention of this character, Kara Thrace. And the whole series itself was just uh, much better than the original, I would say. I really enjoyed it. I think the point is and why so many reboots have failed or, well, left a bad taste in our mouths is uh simply if you wanted to succeed uh stick to as i said the ethos of the story stick to the story more than anything if you're going to change things give a good story uh, offer the world something amazing and um that's really it at the end of the day so we'll see about uh the the lord of the rings reboot again i'm gonna watch it uh, and see what see what happens maybe i'm just a fool uh a glutton for punishment uh at the end of the day it's yeah it's all about the story as becca mentioned frodo and sam knew they were in a story you're in a story we are all in a story. We are under powerful archetypal images and mythic uh, narratives and symbols that flow, uh, that flow through us. And uh, yeah, there is nothing new under the sun. At the same time, your story is completely unique. It's a miracle, even if it parallels the stories of the stars and the stories of the great myths. Uh, that's why I keep saying, write your own gospel, live your own myth, because that's how you uh, find out who you are. That's how you find out where you are in a story in relation to those other great stories. Another important thing to remember is that, yes, your story is unique. Your story is amazing, but your story can help others. Your story has that power to change the world. Um, it reminds me of this quote by William Alexander, which I'm going to say right now. And encompassing all is the gift of story. You will find one day that one person who needs your one story that day, in whatever the circumstances, more than he needs your prayer or your advice. You also may never find that person, but he will hear your story nonetheless, unknown to you. And your story will be the singular gift that will turn away the beasts. I promise you that. The gifts we have been given are many, and the gift of story is a container in which they meet to form a powerful medicine. And if you heard that, that was a cat jumping off the table. So yes, you are in an amazing story, and your story can make a huge difference to others, as the stories we, we read and watch in movies can do the same thing. And if you want to change your story, well... Mm, there are many ways of doing it. Uh, 
the quest for self-knowledge, changing your habits, uh, bringing yourself beyond your edge, scaring yourself, mystical and magical practices. All these things can change a story, but being aware that you are in a story can... Uh, well, that's about, that's about half the battle. As Doctor Who said, our souls are not made of atoms. They're made of stories. So change your story. One thing that I've done recently to change my story, a simple thing, is uh, I put out a squirrel and a bird feeder this winter. It was a way, I don't, it was something that I just did. And it's made a big difference in my life. It's brought a lot more peace. It's a, an amazing event. I watch all day long and it's lowered my, uh, my time on my phone and other mobile devices. And it makes a better world, this little action. So I changed my story. I changed my habit and things got better. I think the birds and the squirrels certainly appreciate that. So that's it for this Finding Hermes. Uh, again, for all subscribers, you will get, if you're listening on audio, you will get our past interview with Becca Tarnas, uh, where we really cover her book in entirely, Journey to the Imaginal Realm. And uh, regardless, and as always, I hope you are ready to walk through those doors with the God of the mind. I hope you're ready to lay all your cards down on the table. And this will make you transparent to the transcendent, as both Joseph Campbell and Mary Magdalene suggested or insisted. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.